take your Bibles and turn to Judges chapter 13, 14, 15, and 16. This is the longest passage of scripture I've ever preached on in one sermon. And I wanted to do that again because I wanted to get, wanted for us to see the overview, the high overview of the story of the life of Samson. Um, the story of Samson is a very complex story. There's much that we can draw out of this. There are many layers to Samson's story, and it's difficult to clearly draw out the primary theme of the story of Samson, particularly to do it in one sermon in one week. However, having said that, there are two very obvious parallels in the story of Samson in spite of sin. So these are, this is what we're going to see. And those parallels are that in spite of sin, God's will will always be accomplished and cannot be thwarted. We're going to see that in the life of Samson, we too often make the mistake of taking sin lightly. And we often treat sin casually. We often justify our sins. We often play with sin as though it's not a big deal. And we do this because we want to live the way we want to live and we don't want anyone else to tell us how we ought to live. And we do this with this notion that we're immune to the power and the effects and the consequences of sin upon us. But in spite of all of this, in spite of our sinfulness, God's plans are never thwarted. And so what I want to do today, recognizing that even in the life of Samson that God's will is never thwarted, I want to actually look at the life of Samson and draw your attention to four dangers of sin that we ourselves need to look for in our own lives. Firstly, the danger of the justification of sin. Secondly, the sweet the dangers of the sweet lies of sin. And thirdly, we're going to look at the dangers of the snare of sin. And fourthly, the consequences of sin. Now, as we go through his life, you're going to recognize that there are many overlays between the four points that we're going to see. And you could draw them out of each one. But I've chosen to draw each point out of a separate matter in his life. So the letter begins, if you've got your Bibles open, as most of the other stories in the book of Judges do, by saying this in 13 verse 1, And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. See, we keep reading about this statement that the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. We keep reading this statement throughout the book of Judges, but if we would take just a moment of self-reflection, it would quickly reveal to us that we're not far removed from this either. In fact, James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15 actually tells us that each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. That's what it is for you and me. This is what the Bible is telling us. Verse 15 then goes on and tells us that desire, when it has conceived gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth 
death. That's the reality of our situation in a fallen, broken, sinful world. This was Israel's situation. This is what we see in the life of Samson. And this is what's true of our lives as well. But throughout this, we also see the faithfulness of the Lord to himself and to his word. And we see it in God's day or in our context as well. And so here in the story, Israel has been oppressed by the Philistines. The Philistines are the enemies out of the east from them. And God is about to raise up another judge that is going to begin to save them. He will not save them fully, but he's going to begin to save them. So join me again as we look at verses 2 through 5 of chapter 13, and we read this. There was a certain man named Zorah of the tribe of the Danites whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and you have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. So, the Lord is going to raise up this judge, and he's been chosen as a judge even before he's born. And when the angel of the Lord appears to Manoah's wife, announcing that she's going to have a son, he instructs her that this child is to be dedicated to the vow of a Nazarite. Now, if you're not familiar with this vow, the, the, that word, the Nazarite vow, it's where we get the word Nazir, which means to be consecrated or separated unto. You're soul, you have a sole purpose. You are committed to God. Now, the Nazarite vow was, a, was not a vow that was a lifelong vow in most cases. Normally, it was a voluntary vow that you took upon yourself that you held for a little while for a specific purpose. But here in the story of Samson, we see that that's not the case. God has called his life, entire life, to be the vow of a Nazarite. Now, as a part of this vow... You were not to eat of the fruit of the vine, and you weren't supposed to drink wine because wine was a symbol of joy. And the idea was that during the time of your vow, you would derive your joy not from any natural means, but from supernatural means, namely from God himself. So you're going to show the Lord and the world that Although I could find joy in these things, at this season, I'm choosing not to do that, but I'm going to find it only in the Lord. Secondly, you would also not cut your hair. You would only shave your hair at the very end of your vow, and then you would actually, once you'd cut your hair, you would then burn it up along with an offering to the Lord, and it was a sign of, of voluntary humility, that you would humble yourself before God. And then thirdly, the other thing you would do is that you would not come into contact with or touch a dead corpse. This is interesting. Why would you? Now, the, the idea here is also that death is a symbol of sin. 
But the Nazarite vow was a symbol of righteousness and holiness or being set apart from sin. And so we see these, these differences here. And so that's what this vow indicated, that you were set apart wholly and completely for God. Now, in the case of this judge, he was set apart for his entire life. Samson was to be set apart his entire life to judge Israel in godliness and holiness as he began to set the nation of Israel free. Now, again, look at verse 24, chapter 13, and we read, And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir in him. Stir him in Mahanedan between Zorah and Eshtaol. So here we see that even as a young man, that the Spirit of God was upon him and stirring within him. This is interesting because normally the Holy Spirit would only come upon prophets, priests, and kings. But here, even as a young man, the Holy Spirit is already upon him. But now, I want to show you in the life of Samson, I want to show you the dangers of justifying our sins. So my first point is the danger of the justification of sin. And again, you could, as we go through the story, you could conclude these points, all four of these points, from each of the situations I'm going to point out. But I've chosen to draw out one element out of each of the stories. But now in chapter 14, verses 1 through 3, read along with me as we begin to look at the life of Samson. Samson went down to Timnah, and Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. And then he came up and he told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you must go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. Now, this is a very interesting statement that he makes at the end of this verse that we need to pay attention to. You see, so here this, we begin to see the issues in Samson's life. Instead of getting a wife from among the Israel people, he goes down into a Philistine city among the Philistine people and finds a Philistine woman that he believes is meant for him. And so Samson commands his parents to go and get her as his wife. Now remember, the issue here is this, that God had commanded Israel that they were not to marry women from the pagan communities around them because it would lead them into a life of idolatry, the worship of false gods. And Samson, as a judge of Israel, would have known this, and he should have known better. And yet he goes down into the people of Philistine, into one of their cities, and sees a Philistine woman and says, she's the one. She is right for me. And so this is an issue. And so his parents even try to reason with him. Is there, is there not a woman among all of our own people that you could marry instead of taking a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? His father uses that phrase, and that's very important. The uncircumcised Philistine, because... Male circumcision was a, was a direct symbol and a reminder of Israel's covenant with God. And part of the laws that came with that covenant was to not marry 
pagan women who worshiped false gods. And so his father brings this idea out. But Samson says to his father, get her for me, for she's right in my eyes. Now here's what's interesting. The way Samson is treating his parents in the Old Testament was actually not acceptable. In fact, the way he's treating his parents, how he's ordering his parents around and commanding them, actually called for the death penalty. In Israel law, the covenant that God made with them called for the death penalty. But Samson, we're going to see, is a narcissist. He's all about himself, right? That's what he's about. He's all about himself and commands his father, go get her for me for she is right in my eyes. That last statement there also very, very important. You see, when he makes the statement for she is right in my eyes, it's what he's showing is that he's living the same way all the people in Israel are living. Because we're actually told in Judges chapter 16 verse 7 that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. See, they weren't doing what was right in the eyes of God. They were doing what was right in their own eyes, and they're justifying all their actions, right? That's how you justify sin, by saying what's right for you, right? This is right for me, but that's not how they were called to live. But that's exactly what Samson is also doing. So what Israel's doing is now revealed in Samson as this judge. It feels right, so who are you to tell me that it's not? He's justifying his disobedience, his sin. And doesn't that sound like our world that we live in today? Everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes. Right? Everyone has their own truth. The reality is there is only one truth. God's truth. Right? But sadly, when we... This isn't something that we just see out in the world. This is something that we even see among many of us who call ourselves Christians. We justify our disobedience. We justify our sins. And although we have this, this, this air of godliness about us, we justify some of our actions, our sinful actions. So we're not immune from it either. Now, the irony in this that you're going to see in the next verse is this, that in spite of the fact that Samson is disobedient and sinning by doing this, we read in verse 4, his father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. So here Samson has this plan because the Philistines are their enemies and they're oppressing his people. And he's got this plan to go about freeing his people. And the way he's going about it is by being disobedient to God and marrying this woman. Now, we read here that, that his mother and father did know that this was from the Lord. And what I don't believe is happening here is that it's stating that God ordained his sin. But, God being the all-knowing God who knows the end from the beginning, who knows all things, nothing is hidden from him, he knows them before they happen, knowing what Samson was going to be like, ordained to use Samson's sin to accomplish his purposes. Because you see, God can and uses all things 
for his purposes. And so here's what we see. We have Samson who's justifying his sin with the argument, she is right in my eyes. She is meant for me. But folks, that doesn't work in the eyes of God. It is still sin. It is still disobedience. So we need to ask ourselves, do we justify our actions? Do we justify our sins? Now this leads us into our next point. The justification of sin comes because of the danger of the sweet lies of sin. Point number two. So in spite of doing what was right in his own eyes, we still see this grace of God upon Samson. And so in his travels, as he's planning to marry this woman from Timnah, this Philistine woman, in his travels towards this town, he comes near Timnah to the grape, uh, the grape gardens, grape gardens, the vineyards. Let me get it out there. He comes to the vineyards and this lion out of nowhere charges at him comes towards him, and in chapter 14, verse 6, we read, Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. Now, this all makes sense to us, right? We all know how easily a goat tears apart. <laughs> I have no idea. I have never even tried, right? Anybody here? Right? We've never tried this. So apparently, it's fairly easy. Right? At least so the idea is that's presented. Now, the idea that's being relayed to us here is that because the Holy Spirit came upon him, that he was filled with the supernatural strength that allowed him to tear this lion apart with a degree of ease. This is stuff only, you know, made for movies sort of stuff. And so he doesn't tell anybody about this lion. He doesn't tell his parents. He doesn't tell anyone else. Kills this lion, moves on like it's your average day, right? Time goes on, and we come to the week where it's his wedding week. And in those days, the wedding ceremony was seven days long. So as he's traveling down to the, to the town of Timnah for his wedding ceremony, he stops along the way to go check out that lion that he killed previously. And when he comes upon the carcass of this lion, the bees have already created a hive within it and are producing honey. Now remember his vow, what he does, Samson reaches into this carcass of the lion Draws out the honey, eats the honey right out of the carcass, and even gives some to his parents, but doesn't tell anybody where he got it from. And the reason he doesn't tell them is because this, again, is Samson breaking the vow that he had with God, that he was not supposed to touch or come near a carcass. Not only does he touch and come near, but he actually reaches in and he eats the food or the honey from within the carcass. And so he keeps this to himself that he's once again broken this vow because that's what sin does, right? We hide it. And so, and this is the other thing that we see here. I think the, the picture that's presented for us here is this. Sin presents itself as something enjoyable. That's what it does. It presents itself as something you just got to have. 
And in Samson's case, it was something sweet. Honey. That sweet, delicious creaminess of the honey from the bees. Right? It was wrong. It was sin for him to do this because of his, the vow that he was committed to. You know, even in my own life, black cherry ice cream, you know, the ice cream that's made with cream and not water, so it's really smooth, right? That's my downfall, black cherry ice cream. And my mindset always is, well, it's having some every night isn't going to do anything to me, right? Although... Science tells us that sugar kills, sugar kills, sugar kills, right? And yet every night, that little bit isn't really going to affect me right now. That's just an example of ice cream. That's one of my struggles, particularly black cherry. But this is actually what sin is like. We don't see it for what it truly is and what it truly does. We just imagine the momentary enjoyment, that momentary sweetness of the taste of it. That's how sin presents itself. And we often fail to see that, right? A little bit won't kill me. A little bit won't hurt anybody, right? But this is how we treat sin kind of like right across the board, right? You found some, you've got some dirt on somebody, Right? You got to tell somebody. I mean, it's right there. It's just gotta, it's got to come out. Somebody's got to know about this. Besides, I'll just share it with one or two people. It's not going to hurt anyone, right? And it's good. Some people need to know. So gossip presents itself in this way that you just got to say it, right? Someone needs to know. It's not a big deal, just a little bit of gossip. Or we feel a bit of resentment in our hearts. Now, you're like, wait a minute, these are very negative emotions. Yeah, but hold on a minute here. Even resentment can present itself as something good, right? It's like it feels good to feel resentment. And I'm using myself as an example because growing up, I had a lot of resentment in my heart. I had a lot of anger and bitterness in my heart that really just ensnared me, right? And that's the reality of my condition, and so it, it actually felt good. That resentment I felt, felt good in the moment. But it's not good. But we do the same thing, right? We say, well, that little bit of resentment doesn't matter. doesn't hurt me or anyone else. That bit of anger or that rage that I feel, it actually feels good. And I'm just being very candid this morning. And we buy the lie that it's not bad, it's not dangerous. We do the same thing when we're tempted with pornography. It's, like it's such a good feeling of enticement and oh, satisfaction, right? But it's a lie. But we overstep that because it feels good in the moment. And we do the same thing with cheating, whether it's on our taxes or on our tests, whatever it may be. Right? We do the same. That's why we often lie because there's some sort of enjoyment or benefit for us to be gained through this, right? And the list can go on. We satisfy ourselves with this momentary sweetness of sin and we don't think it's a big deal. But here's the thing 
when we justify our sins and we have enjoyed and are enjoying the sweet momentary pleasure of sin, there's another danger that comes along with that, and that's the danger of being ensnared or entrapped or enslaved to sin. That's my third point this morning, the danger of the snare of sin. So I want to show you in Samson's life how, how the snare of his sin was revealed. So now as we get into the, this chapter, we've come to his wedding celebration. It's the week of his wedding celebration. As I already stated, the wedding celebrations lasted seven days. And at his wedding celebration, he makes a bet with 30 of the Philistine men that are at his wedding. And he bets that they won't be able to figure out his riddle. Now, I won't get into the riddle, but we know it had to do with the lion that he killed and the honey that, was, that had uh, developed within the lion. And so he uses this riddle, right? And, and there, no one's going to figure it out because he's never told anyone. And the deal that they make is this. If you can't figure this out, you owe me 30 linen tunics and 30 changes of clothes. And he's confident, Samson's confident, that nobody's going to figure this out because nobody knows what he's talking about. They don't know about the dead lion. They don't know about the honey in the lion. So this is, I mean, he, he's proofed his bets here. This is a for sure win for him, right? But because the Philistines can't figure it out, over these seven days, they come to his bride and threaten her that if she doesn't get the answer for them, that they'll burn her in her father's house. And so his bride, during their wedding ceremony over those days, begins to pester him until finally she gives him the answer, who then in turn go back to Samson and answer the riddle. And Samson knows exactly where they got their answer from, and he erupts in anger with a derogatory term directed at his wife, but thrown at these Philistine men. And he says, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. Now, men, this is not how to begin your marriage, right? Do not speak of your wife this way. And this was not an encouragement to her. He's angry. And so we would say losing control, and it's not actually losing control, it's giving in to what has already ensnared him. He, he comes out with this verbal diarrhea. You see, what's happened is that Samson has taken has come to this place where he's taken sin lightly for so long that, you know, that he's indulged in it and he doesn't realize that he's actually become ensnared to the passions of his sins. And when we look at the life of Samson, the two predominant sinful passions that he exhibits are lust or sex and anger. He's enslaved to both of these. And he sacrifices to these two gods that he serves. The God of anger, if you will, and the God of sex. And everything 
is filled out in those two altars right there or lived by that. Now, I want to show you his fleshly response to this situation. But even in light of that, we're still going to see that in spite of what's happening in Samson's life, that God is still even using this. So in chapter 14, we read in verses 19, we're starting there, and it says, And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and he went down to Ashkelon. So after these guys answered the riddle, the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him. He went down to Ashkelon, which is 27 miles, I believe, down the road. He struck down 30 men of the town and took their spoil and gave the garments to those who had told the riddle. Now pay attention here. So he comes back to his wedding ceremony with all this loot and gives it to the Philistines. And at the end of verse 19, we read, And in hot anger, he went back to his father's house. This is very important because you're going to see how this, this, this anger how this continues on and what the effect of it. So after killing these 30 men and giving the spoils of it to the 30 men at his wedding celebration, he doesn't even stay for the rest of his wedding celebration. He bails. He goes back home. Why? Because he's angry. So the guy abandons his own wedding. And on the seventh day, This is important because marriage was consummated on the seventh day. But he doesn't even stick around to consummate his wedding or his marriage, sorry. You see, anger was what caused him to denigrate his wife with that comment or his bride. And then out of anger, he went down to the town 27 miles away, killed those 30 men, and brought back the garments and gave it to these guys. And that was anger. The re- anger was the reason why he doesn't even stay to complete his wedding ceremony. But he leaves and he goes home. He's self-centered, and he's a slave to anger. And finally, now here's the thing, again, the guy thinks there's no consequences to his actions. When his anger finally subsides, he decides, okay, it's finally time to go back down to Timnah and to consummate my marriage. So I'll go down, I'll go visit my bride, and we'll finally bring this thing to completion. Only to discover that because he left, his bride was now given to his best man. You can't blame the best man. You can't blame her father because marriages were arranged in those days. This is Samson's fault because he was ensnared or enslaved to his anger, right? And then we see the anger cycle continue and start all over again. Because of this, because his father-in-law-to-be had given his bride away to his best man, so to speak, He then goes on and says, I'm not going to be guilty. I'm going to be innocent of what happens to the Philistines because of this. And we read the stories, and so we see some back and forth here. I won't take the time to lay it all out, except to say that what he did is in an incredible fashion, he destroys the Philistines' crops by capturing 300 foxes and tying their tails together, attaching torches to them, lighting the torches on fire, and then sending them through their fields and their crop, destroying all of their crop and even destroying their olive orchards. 
because of his anger. But it doesn't end there. The Philistines now in anger retaliate. And they retaliate by taking his father-in-law to be and his bride, his wife to be, and lighting them on fire, thus killing them. And then Samson, of course, isn't done, so he now needs to avenge the death of his bride, or who was to be his bride, and striking the Philistines, as we read, with a great blow. We're not given the details around that, but it was a massive blow, and then when he's done, he goes and he hides in the mountain. The Philistines, of course, respond by now attacking an Israeli settlement, but in doing so, by attacking the settlement, the, the, the Israelis in the settlement and the, the Philistines come to a peace agreement that if the Israelis will hand over Samson, they'll leave them be. And so they go up to the mountain, 3,000 Israel, Israelite men. They know where he is. They talk to Samson, and Samson even agrees. Yeah, I'll come down. Buy me with two new robes. I'll come down and hand me over. Just don't kill me yourself. They're like, that's deal, right? No one else has been able to take you down. We're not going to try. And so in chapter 15, verses 14 and 15, these Israelite men have gone up. They have bound Samson. They're bringing him back. So the Philistines are waiting for him. And then we read this in verses 14 and 15. When he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to meet him. Then the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him again. We see God working in spite of everything. And the ropes that were on his arms became as flax that, caught, that has caught fire. And his bonds melted off his hands. And he found a fresh jawbone on a donkey and put out his hand and he took it. Again, notice he's taking out the jawbone of a donkey. Remember the vow? Not to touch a dead corpse or even come near it. He takes the fresh bone of the jaw of a donkey and is at it again. And he took it, and with it he struck 1,000 men, meaning he killed 1,000 men. This is movie material right here, right? One of the things, I, I tell my wife this, I hate any sort of movie or show where you have one guy who can defeat everything else all at the same time, because it's not real. But here in the Bible, it is real. A natural man filled with the supernatural power of God. Now here's what's interesting. Throughout the whole life of Samson so far, never is it revealed to us, never are we told that he calls out to God in his time of need. He just responds out of the power of his flesh. And with the Holy Spirit being upon him, he, he has a supernatural power. He doesn't realize that he's enslaved and the subject to his anger. You see, it was his anger about the Philistines being able to answer the riddle by which he criticized his wife. And went and killed those 30 men. It was because of his anger that he abandoned his wedding celebration and didn't even consummate his marriage. And it was his anger when he came back that he destroyed all their crops, bringing more death even to his step or father-in-law to be and his wife to be. 
You see what's happening here? This man is not operating through the power of the Holy Spirit in holiness. He's responding out of fleshly anger, and yet God is still using it. But what we don't see is we just don't see him calling upon God in righteousness and holiness. But here's what we do see. The first time he calls upon God is after he's killed a thousand men. And then verses 18 and 19, we read this. And he was very thirsty. And notice, he's just killed a thousand men. He could stop. He could praise God for giving him the victory, right? He could praise God for keeping him alive, right? There's all sorts of reasons he could praise God. But listen, and he was very thirsty and he called upon the Lord and he said, you have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant. He doesn't even say thank you. Okay, God, you've granted me this salvation by the hand of your servant. You did it through me. So he's not saying, God, thank you for saving me. He's like, we defeated these guys. You used me to do it. So he's kind of gloating almost a little bit. And he goes on. He says, and shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? So it's almost kind of like he's now blaming God a little bit. What? Now that you've done this through me, you're just going to let me die? See, he's not calling upon God and in his time of need to thank him or to be grateful. He's still disgruntled. Right? Hey, you just did this through me. Are you going to let me die now because of thirst? Still about him. Still not about God. What's sad is that he doesn't call upon God to set him free from the passion of his anger. He's an angry man. But he's blind to it. It's like he doesn't realize it. It's always somebody else's fault. It's never his. He is justified. He's a, he justifies every cause of his action. Right? But he never calls upon God to set him free from what really binds him. It wasn't the ropes. It wasn't the Philistines. And it never was. He sees his need for the Lord to save him by giving him water. And you know what? He even acknowledges that God gave him the victory over the Philistines. But he fails to call upon the Lord to save him from his own fleshly passions because he doesn't realize he's ensnared to it. Now, either way, God's will would still be accomplished and fulfilled. But Samson doesn't realize that he's enslaved to his sins, to his anger, to his fleshly passions. But God uses him in spite of that. You know, the reason we often justify sins and the reason we often give in to momentary, the momentary enjoyment or the sweetness of sin is because we're actually ensnared to it. It's captured us. And so we need to look at ourselves and we need to ask, wait a minute, does this define me? 
Am I always justifying my sins instead of acknowledging my sinfulness? Am I indulging and justifying my sins because I'm indulging in the sweet moment that I experience temporarily? Have you ever realized that you may actually be ensnared or enslaved to the passions of your flesh? We need to ask ourselves these questions. Does this define me? Lord, help us to see if, if it is and then set us free. But there's one more danger and that's the consequence of sin. You see, Samson's life at this point is not over yet, and we won't even go into all the stories of everything that happened in his life. But when we look at chapter 16, we have the all-famous story that we haven't even touched on yet about the story of Samson and Delilah. Now he's fallen in love again. He's even gone and visited a prostitute in between, another Philistine prostitute. And so this man has no control, right? He's living for the momentary indulgences. But he's fallen in love again and with another Philistine woman. But here's the thing. Although he's in love with her, it becomes apparent very quickly that she's actually not that much into him. Because the Philistine lords come to her, meet with her secretly, and promise her to pay her, to, that each one of the lords is going to pay her 1,000 or 1,100 pieces of silver to seduce him and to find out the secret for his superhuman strength or his supernatural strength. And again, what we behold is Samson toying with sin as though he will never have to bear the consequences. That's what we see in the story of Delilah. So yes, Delilah seduces him and tells her, yeah, if, if they bind me with seven new cords or fresh bowstrings, sorry, then I'll lose my strength. And so he's being dishonest, he's lying, because she has something he wants, and there's something she wants, and that's the money. They both want something, and so I'll tell her a few lies, and right, we'll get on with it. And so she seduces Samson, and what has happened is that she has set up an ambush, not just around her house, but even on the inside of her house, there are men in hiding waiting to capture Samson. And so after she ties him up, she cries out, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. And he wakes up and he jumps up and he snaps the bowstrings that he's bound with, with ease. And then he fights off the Philistines and he's free. Now, you would think he would clue in. Right? But he doesn't. Or maybe he does and he doesn't care because she's got something I want that I need because of his fleshly indulgences. And I can, I, I'm not one who's going to be overcome by the power of sin. I can always fight my way free. I've got the power, right? So she seduces him a second time. And the same thing happens. The men spring out from their hiding places. He fights them off. And you'd think after twice, he'd be like, oh, okay, that's enough. But he goes, falls for it a third time. 
And not even the third time, he falls for the fourth time. Now, we would conclude this man is just not very smart. Or he simply doesn't fear sin. Because he's got this mentality. God's with me, right? I've got his strength that he's given me. So I can indulge all I want because God's never going to leave me. How oftentimes don't we have this mindset? Because I believe in God, because I go to church, because I show up here, because I serve and I give, it kind of offsets the consequences of my sins. Maybe we do that. I don't know. But it's a good thing for us to think through to see if we kind of do something like this. But he's so enslaved to his passions that he's not even concerned about it. And then during the fourth time, we read in chapter 16, verse 17, and he told her all his heart. And he said to her, a razor has never, because, okay, let me pause here for a moment. I missed this point. Delilah comes to him and she's now just, she's just annoying him. Why don't you trust me? How come you won't tell me? How could you? Do you really love me if you're not telling me the truth? I mean, she's given him every reason not to trust her. And yet he gives in. Verse 17. And he told her all his heart and he said to her, A razor has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. Now, we've always been, or let me rephrase it. I had the belief growing up that the strength wasn't Samson's hair. But I would beg to differ this morning and say the, hair, the strength was not in the hair. The hair was simply a symbol of the covenant that he had with God, that the vow that he had taken. Because watch what happens here. He finally tells her, yeah, the secret's in my hair. And after all this time, the consequences finally catch up with him. They cut his hair, and then starting in verse 20 of chapter 16, and she said, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as other times and shake myself free. Right? No big deal. I'll just do what I've done before. But now watch this phrase. But he did not know the Lord had left him. You see, the strength wasn't in his hair. It was a symbol of his vow to God. But what's happened here now is the reason his strength left him was because the Lord had left him. And the Philistines seized him. They gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him in, with bronze shackles. And he ground at the mill in the prison. This is usually work left for animals. His sins have finally caught up with him. But you know what? In spite of all of this, the Lord is still using him. That's not a justification for his sins. But it just reveals to us that God can and does use all things. In verse 23 and 24, we read this. Now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, and to rejoice. And they said, 
our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. You see, that was the big concern about God, with God. The reason he brought Israel in there was because they were to execute part of the judgment of God upon these pagans, right? Who were worshiping false God. Israel was to come in and be a picture and show the power, the glory, the magnificence of the true and living God. But Israel has failed in doing that because they do what's evil in the sight of the Lord and worship false God. And Samson himself is not a good picture either because he is bound to the passions of his lusts. Right? He's, he's bound and enslaved to his sin. And so he has not been this picture of godliness and holiness and righteousness. And so the Philistines are, in a sense, kind of mocking the God of Israel because their God is greater than the Israel of God or the, or the God of Israel, the God of Samson. I will, sorry, wrong verse. Our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. And when the people saw him, they praised their God. For they said, our God has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country who has kindled or killed many of us. But here's the thing. God has concern for his holy name. Right? And God is not done. He will use Samson to his dying day. And all this time, God has tolerated Samson's sins. But it's caught up to him. And because God has zeal for his name, he will not allow the Philistines to claim the glory for their false god. Because, you see, the only reason they were able to capture Samson was not because their God was greater than his, but because his God had left him. That's why. But God uses Samson one last time to bring glory to the name of God. Samson is led between two pillars by a young boy, and that the two primary pillars that hold up the roof of the temple of Dagon... And there are 3,000 people in this building worshiping, in a sense, worshiping their false god, which is, in essence, you know, a, a mockery to the true and living God. And then we read in verses 28 through 30, then Samson called out to the Lord and said, and again, I want you to notice something here. We might think that at this point, Samson would cry out and say, oh, Lord, I have sinned against you. Forgive my sins and use me for your glory. God does end up using him, but I want you to hear Samson. I want you to see what Samson is focused on here. And Samson called out to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once, oh God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. He's still not concerned about the glory of God. He's not grieved 
that the Philistines' God is getting more glory than his God, who is the only true and living God. He's still concerned only about himself. But we read on. Verse 30, and Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all his strength, and the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he killed during his life. Now the story of Samson has a lot of layers to it. A lot of elements to it. It's hard to capture one single theme in his life. But there are several truths that we can embrace even though this story is so complex. How does this all work together that God can still use the sins of man to bring about his will? So here's what I think we can conclude with at least in this very brief sermon. In spite of our sin, God's will will always be accomplished because he can and does use all things to accomplish his purposes and he does it without doing wrong. But we also, in the practical sense, need to understand the danger of sin. Justifying our sin is dangerous. Enjoying momentary pleasures of sin is a snare that traps us, that makes us slaves to its bidding. And sin always comes with consequences, even if it seems at first there are none. You know, in the book of Numbers, there's a really particular verse that tells us, make sure for your sin, we'll find you out. Your sins, the consequences of your sins, will reveal themselves. Your sins will become known, and God's judgment will come upon that. And like Samson, we also need to recognize that all of us have particular sins and passions that entice us. All of us, even as Christians. And like Samson... We are unable to overcome the power of those passions on our own strength. But the good news is, remember at the beginning of the sermon, we read in chapter 13 that we were introduced to Manoah and his wife. And they were barren. They were without children. But an angel of the Lord appeared and made the announcement that she was going to bear a child. We see another story like this in the New Testament where the angel appears and tells a young girl that she is going to be with child and that his name was going to be Jesus. And he would come to set his people free. But unlike Samson, 
although Jesus too was tempted in all things like we are, he was yet without sin. And like Samson, he also died. But he died so that the power of sin in us might be broken and that we might be empowered like Samson, that we might be empowered like Samson to live by his power, to live holy lives, consecrated, dedicated, committed to the sole purpose of the glory of God in all righteousness and holiness. And he's given it to us as a free gift. And my prayer is that you've received that free gift from Jesus Christ. But it doesn't end there. The story doesn't end with us. It never does. It goes further. As we look out into our society, we see people also living out the pattern of Samson. We see people in our society, justifying their way of life. Because this is right for me, is the going mantra of the day. How dare you tell me what's right for me? I will determine what's right for me. But you see, they don't realize, they don't realize that they're enjoying the sweetness of the lie, the sweetness of sin, which is momentary. They don't realize they're actually ensnared to sin. And they don't realize the consequences that are coming their way. Not just in this day, but in eternity. So church, as much as this message is for us, that we need to look at ourselves and ask ourselves, do I see this reflected in my life? This is also about our community and our society. The world needs to hear this message as well. They need to know. The world needs to recognize and be able to see the danger of sin and the consequences of it, the eternal consequences and he has called you and me to take the message of Jesus as the solution, the remedy to overcome the power of sin in their life and to set them free because they're entrapped to sin as well. The question is, will you and I be faithful to the call of God as people that he has chosen and set aside, consecrated to himself, as holy, his own people. We have the call of Samson in that sense upon our life in that we have been called to take the gospel of Jesus to a community that's in darkness. We've been called to reflect the holiness and the righteousness of God and what's more, even his love and his grace and his mercy. Will we be faithful to live out holy lives in a community that's in darkness, will we take the message of freedom from the entrapment of sin to them so that they too might also be free? Pray with me. Oh, Father in heaven, 
there's so much for us here to reflect upon our own lives. Lord, we recognize our weaknesses. We recognize our sinfulness. We recognize the, the passions within our own selves, Lord. But we thank you, Lord, that you have sent to us Jesus Christ, who was the power to overcome these things in our lives. So we thank you for having set us free from the power of it. I pray, Lord, that our lives would be consecrated to you, that we would live holy lives set apart for you to make known your glory to a world that's in darkness. But what's more, Lord, I just pray, Father, that we would sense the urgency and the need to take this message to a world that's living what's right in their own eyes, failing to realize that they're simply indulging in momentary sweetness of sin and that they're actually entrapped to it, Lord. And that there are consequences for their sins. Thank you for revealing that to us by your mercy. Give us the courage, Lord, to live those holy lives and to take this message to those who so desperately also need to hear it. Father, if there's anyone here today, this morning, who has never turned to you by faith, would you give them ears to hear and eyes to see and a new heart to believe and respond in faith to Jesus Christ? And may we then take this good news to those who are in darkness. In Jesus' name we pray with thanksgiving. Amen.